Welcome to the Board Game Workshop. I'm your host, Chris Anderson. I just wanted to let you know before we get to the episode that I started a Patreon for the podcast. So if you go to patreon.com slash theboardgameworkshop, you can help support the show. Thank you. On to the show. Welcome to the Board Game Workshop. I'm your host, Chris Anderson. I'm here with Cassie L. from the Indie Game Report and Eric Yurko from What's Eric Playing? And we're going to talk about game reviews today, which is a little different than our more design-focused things, but if you want to make a game and you want to sell it or get people to know about it, you really need to get reviews. It's becoming increasingly important in this oversaturated market. So Cassie and Eric, welcome to the show. Thank you. Happy to be here. Yeah, thanks for having me on. So let's start with Cassie. You want to give a little background about you, how you got into gaming, what made you start doing reviews? Sure. Um, So I'm Cassie from the Indie Game Report, and I've been doing reviews, I think, about four years now, maybe a little longer. So I started getting into reviews because when I first entered uh, the industry of playing modern board games, I... A lot of the time, I just wanted to look up online, like what the overall gameplay was like, and what uh, you know people's opinions were on it. And a lot of the time, I had problems finding good videos for uh, specifically indie games, because you know, indie game report. I always kind of tend to gravitate towards indie games, so I decided, you know, I'm just going to start recording myself talking about these games. And originally, I was really doing more of like overviews but I would catch myself saying I really like this game or I would start providing my opinion so I was like well this is more of a review than it is an overview so I should start doing reviews so I was doing reviews by myself for a while and um, and it, it's hard to do it by yourself and Mike from Fairway 3 games was writing reviews and we both were kind of tired of having to try to keep up on our websites and be constantly active so we joined forces and made the indie game report and I've been doing it since. Awesome. Uh, Eric, you want to give us background on how you got into this whole thing? Yeah, sure. So um, it's a bit of a, actually, it's not terribly convoluted of a story. Uh, I started maybe three, actually, in three days, it will have been three years. I have a little calendar event that's like, congratulations and some mild applause. Uh, so in 2013-ish, a friend of mine got me Pandemic for my birthday, and I was like, oh, what's this strange game box? I'm only used to, like, Catan and Bang and Careers, an old game that I brought with me. Uh, started playing that, got into it, got a few more games, eventually got to this point where I had a bunch of game rules in my brain, but I didn't have, like, the ability to constructively remember them all. It was just too hard to keep them all sort of in that, like, you know, sad piece of meat. So... I uh, started writing them down at the suggestion of a friend. She was working on a blog at the time. She said, have you considered blocking? So I was writing mostly rules and giving like a light opinion at the end. Um, Got more and more into it. And at a certain point I realized that like when I first started, I was like, I don't think that there's a good way for me to use other people's photos. So I kind of just start taking my own because I have very little photography experience. So I started doing more of that, um, did more photography, ended up joining uh, Punchboard Media uh, at its inception a little while back, and now I'm also just recently joined the Inside Voices Network for help doing some special projects of theirs. So, yeah, that's about the whole thing. So something uh, brings up when you both talked about this is 
We should probably go over what is a review. I know it's it's kind of a nebulous thing, and especially recently, some people have been having rather heated debates about whether something's a review or a preview or an overview or an ad. So, um, Cassie, you want to go first and just what what is your idea of a review? What are the limitations and where are there edges or is it just kind of a blurry gradient? Uh, most of the time, you know, when I... When I hear about these conversations, I think about, you know, I'll compare the board game industry. Oftentimes, you know, you'll see people will compare the board game industry to the film industry or uh, like the literature industry. And you, if you think about someone that makes a film review, most of the time they're kind of going through the film and giving their opinions on each section. And, you know, with a game review, I feel like it's kind of the same way. You're, you're kind of talking someone through the game but you're providing your opinion on each part of this game. And compared to an overview, which would be just walking someone through the game without an opinion. Um, And oftentimes overviews can be ads if someone's paid for them, you know, paid for uh, someone that makes content to create an overview. But oftentimes those do have, it, it sounds like they have an opinion, but it's more like it's just very optimistic about the product. So I think for a review, uh, you definitely need to at least have opinion in there. And a lot of times I'll hear people uh, talk about how they, when they want to review, they don't want to know about the gameplay. They just want to know about the opinion. And for me, I like to provide a little bit of the gameplay um, because... I go back to the reason I I started doing these reviews. And like I said, if I'm talking about an opinion and I'm giving my opinion on certain aspects of the game, it is now a review. I'm reviewing it. But I also like to let people know about what the gameplay is about and let them form their own opinion because that's kind of what I needed when I was first entering the industry and learning about modern board games is, yeah, I do want to know what your opinion is because maybe I'll agree with it. But I also want to know what the gameplay is even about so I can make my own opinion. Um, so that's kind of how I feel a review is, but like you said, you know, it's, it's been a hot topic lately on what's a review and what's not. Yeah, it's interesting people not wanting the, um, like a rundown of the rules or something because games are kind of a strange thing compared to other media. The rules are the game. Yeah. Like if you get rid of the rules, there's, there's nothing there you're talking about. You can say it was a good game, but that's, that's not going to fill up a video or a blog post. But um, Eric, any anything to add on what is a review? Uh, yeah, just a few things. So I generally agree with everything that Cassie's put forward. And part of the reason that I include setup and rules stuff in my reviews is because fundamentally I'm writing these for me. So I have a reference point when I go back and I need to remember the rules later because now I've written all the rules the way I would explain them. So it's helpful for me. So I do get some feedback that people would like to see fewer rules, but I'm like, but I'm writing for me, so it's the rules are staying. Um, one thing that I do see a fair bit is people discussing how many times you need to play a game to give an adequate review, which I find to be sort of a weird concept, because like film reviews and book reviews, you're just sort of doing by yourself. Like I imagine, I don't think that there are that many people who are watching movies in a group and then saying, you know, how the movie changes depending on what group you're with, but games have a very different output and outcome depending on how many people you're playing with. So every so often an arbitrary number gets put forward, like three or five or 10. 
but I find that there are definitely times when I've played a game once or twice and said, mm, this game isn't for me. And I still think there's a difference between this game has some mechanical issues and is a bad game, and this game is a fine game, but it's not the kind of game I would normally enjoy. And I think the hard part of a review is trying to navigate those two fields in a way that makes sense. The number of times issue is, it's interesting to me, because I think it kind of falls much more to the game. There are some games that I've never played that I've watched videos of and heard reviews of, I could probably give a halfway decent review of that game because I know so much about it, never having actually sit down. And then other games I have played numerous times and still couldn't wrap my head around it enough to really give any sort of in-depth insight to someone. So it's it's very strange. Yeah, like this is why I'm never going to review Spirit Island, probably. Every time I think about it, I'm like, well, how would I write it down? How would I talk about adversaries? How would I wrap all this stuff together? And then I get confused, and then I'm sad, and I have to lay down for an hour, and that's a whole hour gone now. <laughs> that's great. It's a tough business. Yeah, it's a lifestyle. Yeah, I would agree with what Eric said is, you know, that it's definitely, it definitely is pretty arbitrary to just say you need to play a game X amount of times to be able to review it. And like you said, you watch it. You watch a movie with a group, different groups, maybe you'll talk about it afterwards, but you're also watching it usually one time, and then you're reviewing it if you're a film reviewer. And if you're reviewing a book, you usually read the book one time, and then you talk about it. And some games you can do that, especially if it's a, like a solitaire game, you're playing by yourself, and you have time to, as a reviewer, if you're you know, expecting to review the game, you have time to develop your opinion as you're playing by yourself. And you can play it a couple of times, but if you're playing by yourself, I think after one play, you know, of course, depending on the game, you could come up with a solid opinion. You know exactly what to ex what you're going to experience next time you play. So you, do you need to play it five times for you to agree with yourself? Or is that one time you played that solitaire game good enough for you. And like, you know, it does depend on the type of game. Some games you have to play because they're heavier. You have to play them a good amount of times to really gather your thoughts together of how you really feel about each mechanic. And sometimes there's so much going on in a game, you have a lot to talk about and you kind of need to play it over and over again so you can gather your opinion on each part that you wanted to talk about. So like you said, it's, uh, it does feel kind of arbitrary to say you need to play a game X amount of times to be able to review it. Oh, I agree. A good example of this is, and I don't mean to provide an opinion on the game whatsoever since I'm still drafting, but um, I was playing Show and Tile, uh, the new party game from Jellybean. The game itself is composed of four sub-rounds, where in each of the rounds you're playing the same general type of game. After one game, you've played four rounds of it, so really the actual like overarching game doesn't change that much between rounds there's some scoring in between there's an overall winner but i think oink games does this a lot as well with their sort of you play the game three times and the person with the most points from those games wins you kind of know how the game is going to go in rounds two and three or you know how the game is going to go in rounds two three and four so you're usually probably all right giving an opinion of some kind after one full game because you've done the core bit of the gameplay, you know, three, four times by the time you've played through a full game. Let's bring it around to uh, designer-focused stuff. So 
how how does a designer go about getting a review for their game? Maybe personally for you or just in general? Is it something they should be trying to get reviewers for? Is it something that should be more natural and just if reviewers pick out your game? Or does it depend on certain things? I know a lot of people need reviews for um, their Kickstarter pages. And there's there's some reviewers that specifically do Kickstarter reviews. And that's their entire business model is doing Kickstarter reviews. And again, that are we on the line of review and preview and that sort of thing? So what are what are the things that designers would have to do to get a review done? So I think the easiest way to get a review is to either, if you know people or know reviewers that you like, they often have contact pages or they have email addresses or you can, it's less good, but you can DM them on Twitter or send them a message on Instagram or Facebook. Generally speaking, I don't love those three options because it, it's harder for me to keep a record of all my like agreements in one place. I prefer email and I have a contact page for that sort of stuff. But if you like a reviewer, reach out to them. Say, hey, you know, I've got this game I'm working on. I would love for you to take a look at it, preferably for some reason. So I get a bunch of emails where it's just me and the BCC and the title line is, hi, what's Eric playing? Which means that they didn't do a very good job of mail merge, which is sad in its own way. And they'll say, you know, I would like for you to review my game. And I'm like, do you even know what I do? Half the time they don't. Sometimes they'll ask me for a video review. I've never done a video review. Sometimes they'll say, we'd love for you to talk about it on your podcast. I don't have a podcast. And it's it feels kind of lazy. And if you want us to go through you know, the time of investing in your game and making a review of your game, you need to have done at least a little bit of homework to make sure that you know your game is a good fit for what we're reviewing. Because you know, if you send me a six to eight hour war game, I'm probably not going to like it that much because my focus is generally on family, casual, and light strategy games. That's fine. It may be a perfectly good war game, but knowing your audience, I think, will lead to a much better outcome. Along the lines of what you said with the poor mail merge, you know, on, on the Indie Game Report, we have a form that you fill out where you put information about what you're looking for. Are you looking for a written review? Are you looking for a video? Are you look, you know, how long is your gameplay? Is this for Kickstarter? There's all these questions we ask. And then there's an area where you type in information about your game. And you know, all the time you get emails where they'll fill out nothing except they'll copy and paste the same information that they've been asking other people for reviews with and they just paste it right in and send it along and like you said it's not you know we do this because we enjoy doing this we don't do this i i don't do it for the poorly created prototypes that i sometimes am sent to review you're I not do selling them. them for that big reviewer money yeah right <laughs> <laughs> rolling in big dollars over here um so you know, we do it because we enjoy it. And so if you're coming to us with a copy and paste, we don't feel like you actually want us to put effort into it. You're just checking off some boxes and it doesn't matter who's doing it. You're just checking off some boxes. Oh, I sent it out to reviewers. I did the thing. And it, it does matter um, how you approach reviewers because we get approached by a lot of people and um, like, uh, like we were saying at the beginning of the podcast, it is a pretty saturated market. 
So if you're having a bunch of people ask for a review and a lot of times the Kickstarters, they're for Kickstarters and they're launching about the same time. So we don't have enough time to do all of these Kickstarter reviews and we have to be selective. And we're gonna be selective with the ones that seem to care about who they're sending out for reviews to. Yeah, I completely agree. And one more thing I'd really like to add is when you're a designer going for a review of some game, you've got a little bit of not power is not quite the word that I want to use, but you have the ability to lift up a like set of voices, especially if you're going on Kickstarter. So naturally you'll want to go for some, you know, bigger names, get that recognition, you know, get people calibrated on it. But there's also a board game reviewer group on Facebook that's pretty full of people who make content from different countries, from different backgrounds, different like identities. And I think it's important when you're considering, you know, what kind of or what kind of reviews you want to get for your game, but you're also considering like the diverse landscape of reviewers and using the opportunity that you have for making a game to uplift new like content creator voices. And I think that's good in a way. It's nice to see, you know, when I look at a Kickstarter page, it's nice to see a variety of reviewers. In fact, I'm a little suspicious if I don't see a variety of reviewers. And it's nice to see like people ranging from sort of larger review outlets to like small, small, like newer review outlets. Because it shows that someone's taking time also to like invest in new content. You know what I mean? Yeah. And what's great about that page too is if you're looking to get a good diverse amount of people to review your game, sometimes you don't know who those people are that are going to even want to review your game. So you can come to this Facebook group and share your game and you'll get tons of people reaching out to you that are interested. And that's great because you're not wasting money on prototypes and having to ship to people who are going to turn around and say, oh, this isn't my kind of game. Why did you send this to me? You're going to both A, get the diversity that you're looking for in bigger names and smaller names, and you're also going to get those ones that actually are interested in your game. So the chances of getting a good review back, as long as you know your game is actually good, but of getting a good review back of someone that would even enjoy that type of game is greater. And it's a good room um, to, to find reviewers in. So I, I'm surprised a lot of reviewers actually don't know about it, especially new content creators. So I'm trying to start share to share that group more uh, widely so we can get even more of our content creators on board. Those are great points. I will hopefully remember to put a link to that group in the show notes. So I thought of a thing. You're, you don't do this for money, generally, as far as I know. Neither of you do paid reviews. Is that correct? That is correct. I will occasionally charge a uh, rush fee if someone asks me to review or to check out their Kickstarter game less than like two to three weeks before launch because I have a whole life to lead and this forces me to realign my priorities. But in general, no. But I feel the need to always clarify that. <laughs> Makes sense. But, well, that, that goes to my question. Um, it's kind of a strange system where you're a reviewer. You do this mostly for fun, but it's also like a very integral part of the board game business. Board game publishers need reviewers to get the word out. I mean, except for the very largest publishers that can rely just on their their marketing budget. Like reviewers are super integral to especially the indie market. So it's it's kind of a strange thing that you do this. I mean, maybe hobby is too light of a word because it's a ton of work, but you do this as a hobby and 
it's kind of a required part of the business, which, I mean, the entire board game business is made up of hobbies, it seems. So any any thoughts on that? It's, it seems like a, a strange power dynamic of designers and publishers needing reviews, but it's not, like, they're not paying for it in most cases. I know what you mean, and it is interesting. It's hard, though, because, you know, I know that there are some bigger names that charge because they are so big they like what eric was saying you don't have time to review every single game that someone wants you to review and especially if they're reaching out to you last minute so i understand how some of them uh have to charge and you know you've got crazy equipment you've got to keep your website going and a lot of times your viewers and readers expect you to attend conventions and you have to pay for that no one else is paying for that so i understand that you know uh, having to charge and i think you know a lot of game creators, publishers, and designers, when they send games off to reviewers, they kind of see the expense as being the review game. Or, you know, what what we ask for at the Indie Game Report is if we are reviewing a game that's a Kickstarter, you know, we don't charge, but if you're successful with funding, we do request a final copy of the game, which is, I mean, it's not like we're getting paid big dollars and if we did get all of these free games we're not going to turn them around and be able to pay like our mortgage with it but i think um it is an interesting dynamic but one of the things i have learned about is you know when you get into the overview side and the preview side that's when there's a lot more charging of things because there is no opinion it's hard to charge to provide an opinion i feel so it's you know what do you do with that if you're a reviewer can you you know how do you make you can't really make money because it's just kind of odd to me to pay someone to give an opinion i don't know do do reviewers of films charge i think they just kind of make money based off of who they work for yeah i think i think that's a different system like there's most reviewers for board games aren't part of a newspaper or a cable channel so they're it's not their job to go review other people's stuff it's I don't know, it's a very strange system. Maybe it's just like in a in a lot of ways the board game industry is very young compared to other industries. So these systems aren't as developed and there aren't I mean, there are kind of major board game media networks, but they're mostly a lot of hobbyists coming together. Even the Dice Tower, which is possibly the biggest board game network around, maybe actually um Geek and Sundry, I guess, would trump them. But they're mostly just hobbyists. People that have their own podcast or their own video channel just coming together under an umbrella for support. So it's it's a very strange young industry. Along those lines, yes, you don't make money based off, off of each individual review, but uh, review networks will make Kickstarters to fund themselves. And they'll reach out to people who made games that they've reviewed, and they'll ask for promo cards for their games. And a lot of times, those publishers are totally willing to provide art assets and change things up a little bit so you can have just a little promo to make some money for yourself. And I've seen that as being the primary way that reviewers make their money and are able to do this because a lot of times there's games out there, especially if you're a newer newer reviewer, um, you can't afford and you're not getting sent all of these new hot board games that bring along the views. So you have to spend your own money for it. And so they make their own Kickstarter campaigns for like say seasons. I don't know how many of us actually have seasons of what we make, but they'll say, you know, or for years, year three, year four. And that seems to be the primary way of making money because like I said, you can't really make money off of giving your opinion each individual item, 
but being able to get the community together to say, yeah, let's support you seems to be working a lot better. Yeah, and in the same way, you'll see sort of Patreon starting to form as well. I think Patreon speaks a bit more to like the delocalized nature of the like modern internet in that instead of having a like large media apparatus to support you, you tend to have people who subscribe to you personally and in doing so spend a little bit of money. I have a Patreon. I mostly use it to just deal with like website fees. Eventually I'm going to try to import more games from like other countries and clean up my website more if I can, you know, get more money in the Patreon. But aside from that, yeah, I'm not really swimming in that big reviewer money. I am also incidentally not swimming in that big photographer money. So it's mostly just for a hobby. Yeah, I just started a Patreon for this podcast, which hopefully I announced at the beginning of the show. Well, since we're talking about there's also another one. Um, It's not Patreon, but it's similar. It's like called Coffee with a K. It's like K-O-F-I. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That one's pretty handy because if you just want to say a quick thank you, you can just send someone like a couple of bucks. It's not like PayPal, because I guess you could do it PayPal, but PayPal can be a pain in the butt. Um, so you just are like, yeah, let me buy you a coffee. Here's five bucks. And I think it's really cute. And I think that's a nice way to, because some people don't want to do a subscription. Some people don't want to like back a Kickstarter because those things come and go. And I think uh, it's another additional way that you can support content creators. Just buy them a coffee. I actually personally don't have any means of accepting funds, but I, we don't have a Patreon. I'm thinking of the Indie Game Report. We don't have a Patreon or a Kickstarter or coffee or any of that stuff. (laughs) Do it. We've been tossing around the idea of uh, making a Kickstarter, actually. Um, Do it. I know. Well, we're like trying to figure out what we're going to do Even if you don't promote it, it, just having one so people can throw money at you. Yeah. Don't stop people from throwing money at you. The best advice I got was from Joe Sandow, who was just like, if you're thinking about making a Patreon, make a Patreon. The absolute worst case scenario is you don't get any money and then, well, you're no worse off than you started. Great point. The only thing with Patreon is I feel like you have to provide additional content uh, or, you know, like, is that, you know? (laughs) If you want to push it and promote it and make it a thing and raise a lot of money, yes, like you have to build that up. But just having it is free. I definitely don't provide additional content. (laughs) Also, because it's like, what would I write? If I wanted to make additional content, I would either put it on Punchboard or I do stuff for Inside Voices, because my like my personal site is just for reviews, and I'm not really sure how to expand the network without making it just like feel exploitative. Like for five dollars a month, you can read my thoughts on Gen Con, which are <laughs> like my thoughts on Gen Con are worthless. I'm going to tell you that right now. You have platinum level reviews that only the fifty dollar a month subscribers get to read. <laughs> yeah, I mean, right. how else am I super- actually? I'll just start sending people minis of me. I was actually thinking of doing, I mean, not like sending small, small Cassies, but of like making little stickers and making little things and just like hand making stuff. Stickers and, are fun. Use yeah. Redbubble. I have, I have some logo stickers on Redbubble. I ordered them for my own laptop. They're great. Highly recommend. Nice. I have a Redbubble sticker of my logo on my laptop right now. Are they pretty inexpensive? Yeah. It's like if you buy usually they are on sale such that if you buy 10 you can get them for like a dollar a piece and like a dollar a sticker is not like incredibly cheap but it's also not like incredibly expensive that's true uh, my mom just purchased one of those fancy 
Cricut machines that does all the fancy cutting and stuff like that. And she made me a little Cassie L vinyl for like my learn to play video services thing. I have this little vinyl on the back of my car that's just like my brand and I think it's so funny but I was thinking I could do something like that like little indie game report vinyls little stickers but I don't know if her machine would make all that stuff but I'm like who do I know in town that has all these cool machines and I can just say hey hey you've got a 3d printer can you 3d print me a little I don't know a little tiger I don't know <laughs> I don't know what I would make but I was just thinking who around town can I utilize their resources to make things worthy of a Patreon. I always just tell people, do it. Well, then maybe I will. That's the spirit. And then the benefit of Redbubble, too, is it acts as a storefront, so you can just add a percentage on to whatever you make, so you're not paying for any materials, you're not doing any of the work after the setup. They'll, basically, it's print-on-demand, shirts, stickers, all sorts of weird stuff. Yeah, you can get a What's Eric Playing duvet cover, (laughs) What's Eric Playing leggings, Oh my! Um, a what's Eric playing weird plastic cube paperweight? The possibilities are finite, but increasingly weird as you go along. I've disabled most of those options because I think if I saw someone at a convention wearing what's Eric playing like leggings, I would get uncomfortable for reasons I don't fully understand. I want sunglasses that just have the what's Eric playing logo on either lens and just like just that walk around. That seems neat but expensive. <laughs> <laughs> Worth it. <laughs> they just do cut out vinyls and put it on the lenses. Oh, yeah, there's, there's the fix. See, we solved it. <laughs> just poke a bunch of holes. It'll be fine. <laughs> it's great. So one thing I, I think that could be brought up, I guess, with review-related uh, stuff is when you get games that are meant, first of all, I don't think either of Eric or I mentioned it, but when reaching out to a content creator with enough time for them to create the content. Ugh. Yeah. So a lot of times someone will reach out and say, my Kickstarter is live. Can you review my game? And my answer is no, I cannot. Because that is not enough time. You're asking to send me a game and like play it three times or however arbitrary number we're going with. And then turn around and review. And I make videos, um, which take a lot of editing to get a video at least to my standard. And if I had time to write whenever, wherever, that's fine, but I don't have, I can't just bring my laptop all over the place and edit video. So if I have to make a video, I, I usually ask for at least a month, a month from the day it is arriving in my mailbox, because that gives me plenty of time to, you know, cause life happens. So it gives me plenty oh, of time. Yeah. And you know, things happen, you know, I had a hurricane come through and I had a learn to play video that I needed to get done and my power was out for a week. And it's like, what am I supposed to do with this? <laughs> so like life happens, you know, so you want to have enough time to, to work on it. You know, when it comes to a video, I have to play the game. Then I have to write a script. Then I have to set up my studio um, because my studio changes and I'll explain that. So I set up the studio. I record my, usually I'll record my introduction and my, the latter portion of my videos is when I put the review part in. So I'll record both of those. Then I have to rearrange my studio so I can do like the 180 degree recording of the gameplay. Like we said, I'd like to talk about a little bit about how the game plays before I give my opinion. So I'll record that. Then I have to splice all of these together and cut out all of my nopes because I say that a lot when I mess up. I'm, nope, that wasn't it. Take it again. And so I'm like doing all of this editing. And then 
it just like takes so much time sometimes. And I don't know if like publishers are aware of how much time that takes. A lot of publishers don't do video stuff or do a lot of uh, video interviews. They do, you know, podcasts are a lot easier to sit in front of a computer and be recorded than having to like make sure you look good. No one's looking at you. So there's like a lot that goes behind making a video. And that's why I ask for a month in advance because sometimes I'm ready to record and it's raining really loudly. And you can definitely hear that in my video. So, or my neighbor decides now's the time to mow my lawn and you can hear that in my video. So I need time to be able to make sure I can get it all done because I, the worst thing for me is to miss a deadline or not make some, you know, I ask for a deadline if it's for Kickstarter, when do you want this video by? So I can make sure I can meet their deadline goal. And that's what, you know, I, I'd rather make sure I meet that goal and have enough time to make sure I get that goal than to be rushing around. And, you know, it's, it's like a pain in the butt sometimes if someone sends something to you last minute, or if they reach out to you and they're like, Hey, I'm going to send the game to you at this point. And you say, yeah, that totally works. Perfect. Because this is your deadline. And then they don't send the game when they said they were going to, and they send it to you two weeks before their deadline now. And that's not what the original agreement was. And you know, it, it gets kind of frustrating with that stuff. So that's why I ask for at least a month in advance. Yeah. And that's why I charge a pre or a rush fee. Like if someone's going to roll up in and say, Hey, I've got this great game. It's launching on Kickstarter in one week. I would like you to review it. Is it, physically possible for me to play a game three times, do the photography, do the writing, draft out the review, post the review everywhere in one week? Probably. Is it fun? No. And I feel like considering <laughs> we're trying to review a game, if the experience of playing your game is sufficiently mitigated by the circumstances around which I'm playing your game, that can that can be not great it can negatively impact my like because like right we're, we're writing opinion pieces right yeah and sometimes it's hard to disconnect how did i feel when playing this game with how did i feel about all the circumstances that happened prior to playing this game it's why i try not to write a review if i'm in a bad mood right like that yeah. stuff kind of filters in even then i still ask for four to six weeks minimum when they when someone asks me for a review because i'm just like yeah i i I have a sufficient backlog because, I mean, I will also concede that I think writing and photography is easier than making video or podcasting. Just my personal opinion. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> well, from a technical side, it definitely is. Like, less things can go wrong yeah. with that. Once you add recording real-time audio, you get more problems. Once you add video, you have every problem. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But you're assuming that I don't just accidentally leave out an entire paragraph because I got distracted and went for a coffee, came back, and was just like... What? No, I was probably done with this section, which has happened on several occasions. <laughs> That's really funny. But you don't have to redo your set to put it back in. Oh, I completely agree. That's This is why I'm not complaining. But even then, I still ask for a long amount of time because since I think the problem is since it's a little bit, I'll say, easier for as a shorthand to make written content, you tend to accept more review requests. So it means that your backlog starts getting more aggressive. And this could be just me, but this has been my experience is that I have a fairly aggressive backlog and in order to try and do justice to all the games that I've been sent, it takes me some time to get to them. And I tend to prioritize, as Cassie already pointed out, games that there's an explicit deadline for over games without an explicit deadline. Yeah, I've been sent plenty of games where I've asked, hey, do you have, you know, a deadline? And they're like, nope, 
it's published just whenever. And I'm like, all right, to the bottom of the queue it goes. <laughs> oh no, there's a there's a special bottom of the queue. Oh yeah. <laughs> the bottom, the the truest bottom of the queue is, and I feel almost bad saying this. If you send me a game, but we haven't talked about me reviewing it, like oh. if I just if I'm just at my desk at the office and a game shows up and I'm like, what is this? And someone's like, thanks in advance for the review, and I'm like, how did you get my address? Or if it's someone that I've got an existing relationship with, I'd like to get a heads up in advance because I plan everything pretty aggressively. I've got a really aggressive spreadsheet for how I manage my reviews. If if I can't get it onto that spreadsheet because I wasn't expecting it, it's totally possible that it just gets set aside and set aside and then set aside and set aside and then just never reviewed. Yeah, I have a few games that I was sent where, you know, like if um, it was a, a publisher that I was first starting to work with mm -hmm. and they had all these published games that are older, they're not really popular anymore and they just have them. So they sent mm -hmm. me these games but then after I got these games, I also had the Kickstarter games with the deadlines coming in. And so, like you said, they're just slowly pushed back, keep pushing it back, keep pushing it back because there is no deadline. There was no expectation of when they were going to get the review because, like I said, it's an older game, probably mm -hmm. published at least five, six years ago. Yeah. Um, so they're just like, hey, you're a new reviewer. Here's some stuff to get you going. Mm -hmm. and Which is really nice. Yeah, it's definitely awesome because that means if I, you know, eventually I might get to a point where no one's contacting me at a certain point just because that's just how life goes sometimes. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, well, I still have these games I need to review. And then, you know, you purchase games that you play and you enjoy and you think, well, yeah, I'll review this eventually when I'm ready and I can get through the Kickstarter things. But honestly, the Kickstarter things have not stopped. I have to say no, no. to them to get to the other non-Kickstarter games. I basically am at a point now where I still review some Kickstarter games that I'm sent from, you know, people that just generally ask, but almost like I'd say a solid half or more of my Kickstarter reviews are just publishers that I have like a standing agreement with, or I've worked with in the past, or I've already established a relationship, because there are a lot of publishers that are just consistently pushing to Kickstarter. What's Eric playing has no formal opinion on that statement. And it's it's just there are enough games coming on kickstarter that it's i just tend to work with people i have an existing relationship with i will say the best advice i can give to like a newer reviewer or actually really just any reviewer is i have like a buffer i have a bunch of unpublished reviews that i'm just sort of sitting with and i'm waiting until yeah like cassie said I go through a lull. There aren't that many games coming out, but I want to keep a consistent schedule of content being released and I'll push them out then. It makes it really easy if I get games in, if, I, if Kickstarters I've personally backed arrived and I want to talk about them more to sort of have those as a, oh, I had a slow month. I'll just push out these reviews that I've already written. So that way I'm not like, oh, I have to take a week off because I have nothing to publish. So that brings up a good topic. Um... What is some important stuff that a new reviewer should know for if they want to start reviewing? Because once once you get big, then you have relationships with companies. They start sending you games. Um, but early on, no one knows you. No one knows your content. Um, and you haven't built up that trust with the industry. So what are, what are some ways for them to start out? So when I first started, 
I just had games that I had already played and I enjoyed, and I just started talking about them. And that seems to be the way you start is by just talk about the games you enjoy. And it doesn't really matter the format that you put out your content, if you're writing or doing a video or doing um, a podcast, but you, you usually have to start with things you already own. And a lot of us have talked about how do you get games that you want to review that are hot and you want to make, you know, your get your foot in the door. And usually it's with hot popular games. And sometimes you have friends that own it, just borrow the game. Or if you have, if you're lucky enough to have a library that has a game library or a local game store that has a game library, maybe you can just borrow those games. And it doesn't always, you know, I started with what I owned, like maybe seven or eight games and you buy a game, you play it, you really like it, you talk about it. And eventually one person reached out to me and I was like, whoa, someone wants me to talk about their game and they want to send it to me and I don't have to pay for it. What is this? And then I did it. And then I kept talking about more games that I already owned. And then another person reached out to me and I was like, wow, this is amazing. So starting with games that you already own is a really good way to start. And also finding networks like what we were talking about earlier, the Facebook group is a great place to start. And I actually started uh, with, um, I, I haven't mentioned it before, but there's a company called the Indie Game Alliance. And they have a volunteer program where when you play games out in public, you get points and you can turn points into getting copies of games uh, from members who are publisher members who are in the Indie Game Alliance. And so I would just play games and I earned points and then I turned them in to get more games. And then I played those games and I reviewed them. And, you know, I, that was a really good networking place for me because not only can you volunteer to earn points and then eventually turn those points into games, but they also have a network in there for content creators. So if you are a reviewer, you can put up your information there. So when indie game publishers are looking for reviewers, they know where to find you. And that was a really good networking place for me as well. And also Twitter is very popular for if you're trying to get into the game publishing uh, network, if you're trying to have these people find you, just interact with people. That's like a, a huge ordeal is just interact with people. Completely agree with everything Cassie said so far. Uh, it's honestly baffling to me sometimes when like, a company doesn't have a Twitter presence just because so many companies that I know are active on Twitter these days. But the I have the same sort of getting started story, right? Like I owned a bunch of games. Um, I reviewed a bunch of the games that I owned, but I didn't start trying to like promote content or get content seen until I had a sufficient like repository of content. And that's one thing I'd recommend is there's a temptation when you first make content to be like, hey, you know, this is my first review, you know, I'm getting started with this. That's good. I mean, it's good to get get out there. and It's good to get, you know, that initial push. But I find it's easier to get traction if you've already got sort of a repository of existing content. So don't launch with your first video, launch with your fifth video or launch with your 10th video or launch with your, you know, 10th or 15th review. So that way when someone goes to your page or channel or site or 
I don't know where you store podcasts. I'm going to be perfectly honest. Not a lot of people do. It's a weird system. Yeah, I was going to say the podcast hole, but I assumed that wasn't a technical term. But I'm going to assume it is now. So the podcast hole. um, (laughs) The podcast hole. That's so funny. (laughs) So when you've encountered this mystical hole of podcasts, being able to reach your hand in deep and pull out more than one podcast, I have no idea what this is a metaphor for at this point, but I'm just rolling with it. means that someone can stay longer and they can get a better sense of what your voice is, the kind of stuff that you like, the kind of stuff that you don't like, and whether or not that gels with their mental model of like the kind of content creators they want to follow. You know, what's funny is I actually started making videos before I was talking about board games. I had a, you could probably still find it if you, if I, told everybody what the name of the channel was, but I won't. But I did things where I just reviewed (laughs) nerdy things. Like I enjoyed talking about, and this is actually how I got comfortable being in front of the camera. I recorded myself talking about things I just enjoyed that were part of the like nerd fandom world. I talked about Star Trek. I talked about Star Wars. I talked about comic books. I just talked about things that I enjoyed sitting in front of the camera. And that's a good way to start too, is just, just write or talk about however you're going to make your content, just do it with stuff you already enjoy. And you'll get familiar with your writing style and your, in my case, you'll get comfortable being in front of a camera and you'll have to read your work and think about ways that you would change it. And every time you do another one, it's better. You know, I can, I love watching my old stuff. It's also extremely embarrassing because I compare it to the stuff I make now. And it's like, Oh God, what was I doing? But it's, great to see how much better I've gotten since then. And just do things that you enjoy. If you're worried that publishers aren't going to like the things that you're talking about, talk about what you do enjoy talking about because you're going to be excited about it and you're going to be optimistic. And that's what people enjoy reading about is and watching is someone being optimistic about things they enjoy. So if you're feeling nervous about getting into the board game reviewer industry, you can, you don't have to start with, games. You can start with anything that you love and enjoy and it'll make you feel, I think, in my opinion, it it made me feel more comfortable when I did start giving opinions about board games. That's awesome. Great advice. So since you both are known for reviews at this point, I mean, I'd say you're both pretty well known in, at least on the Twitter groups that I am in, I see you both a lot. Um, Do you ever have any issues with the difference between your personal opinion and your thought out reviews, like you have to be more careful just having conversations with people about board games or is your personality and your brand so interconnected that they are the same thing anyway? Worryingly, yes. I do think that my, my, I'm, I'm using air quotes. I just realized halfway through my, like that I was actually just talking to nothing. So assume that I'm air quoting around personal brand and is like kind of tied to, I mean, I'm just one person. So that's the nice thing about being a solo review channel is I can just be me as a like constructed existence. There's no, I don't have to deal with like, oh no, but what will the other Eric's and what's Eric playing think if I say that this, you know, game isn't my favorite game in the world. It's not necessarily as big of a deal. It's great with the indie game report. I mean, we could all disagree about stuff. And there are games that I really enjoy that some members of the Indie Game Report are like, not about. And that's okay, because we don't really like, hash it out or argue about things. We all just have our opinions. And that's what reviews are. It's just opinions. Everybody's going to have their own. 
and they're not all going to be the same. And when I have a game that I don't like, I mean, like going back to the original question, Cassie L and Cassie are the same thing. Um, sometimes I won't publicly announce that I don't like a game at all. But if I do a review of a game that I don't like, I am very constructive about it. I'm never like, this game was terrible. It's always like, this is what I enjoyed and this is what I didn't and these are why. And this is what I would do to make it something I would enjoy, which I think is more uh, helpful if you don't like a game to just to, to say why you don't like it as opposed to, oh, that game is terrible. Never would play that game again. Okay, well, that's nice. Thanks for giving your completely negative opinion. Uh, and then I try not to get into that negative criticism kind of thing. I, you know, it, I want to be helpful. I don't want to just say this was terrible. I want to be helpful. So if there is a game I don't like, I'm not afraid to say it. And, but I also say why I don't like it. And most of the time it's because it's just, there's certain things about it that weren't for me. And I don't want anyone to feel like, oh, she's just rude. She doesn't want to say anything nice about some games. Well, there are some games that I'm not going to like, but I'll tell you why. And I won't be mean about it. One of the, so when I was doing my undergrad, and, uh, I took a bunch of classes on like design thinking and brainstorming and they were fine. But the key insight that I got from them, I think, was that one of the best ways to frame criticism of an idea is splitting it into I like and I wish not I like and I don't like, but rather I like this thing, but I wish this also was a thing. So you're presenting it as a, what would it take for this to become something that I do like? And I find that presenting that as my constructive feedback for games That's awesome. is helpful. It's helpful for me to frame it in my mind that way because I am not a game designer. I don't feel super comfortable saying, I, and you'll notice if you you know if you go through my reviews, I try not to talk about things like game balance or talk about like how the actual design of a game plays out. I talk more about how does a game make me feel, what do I like, what do I wish that I felt while I was playing this game, and what do I wish happened while I was playing this game, rather than giving explicit design feedback because I think it it takes me out of a place where I can be seen as trying to do a design do a designer's job better. And it's more of a, I'm providing feedback on something that went really well for me during the game or something that didn't go really well for me during the game. That's hard for me to separate the design feedback because I am trying to, you know, get my foot in the door with a couple of my designs. Right. And so it's relevant for you anyways. For me, I'm not. So I'm just staying out of, I'm staying in my lane. <laughs> I know what you mean. And I've, you know, I tried to give my feeling about something too. So I, I reviewed a game recently where I talked about the artwork and when I played the game, how it made me feel. I was, and I was pretty descriptive. I was like, you feel like you're, you've been stuck in the office all day and you finally got to go out and enjoy the sun and feel the breeze. And that's the feeling I got when I played this game. So I got a little bit into that emotional part, but then I went on to say, I, this mechanic I think could have been done this way. And this game makes me feel like if you use this mechanic, it would be more thematic. So I get, I guess, a little bit into both. I try to talk about the art in the way because a lot of times it's the artwork, right? That makes you feel things and it's, it puts, oh, yeah. yeah. And it puts on um, like the way publishers can make a player 
experience a lot of the time the kind of thing they want them to experience. So if you have like bright, colorful artwork, you're probably going to have a whimsical feeling kind of time. And if you have a game that's dark and more like Cthulhu themed, you're going to be maybe a little more on edge. And it it's the artwork I like to talk about a lot because of how it makes me feel. Um, but outside of that, I do tend to get a little more into the design part of it with my crit critiques. Yeah, I think that's totally reasonable. It's sort of the different strokes for different folks mindset. I do think there's an interesting space opening up in that games tend to make us feel happy or scared. I don't feel a lot of other things when playing games because they're either like vague horror, happy, fun games or sort of exciting, intense games. The stress sometimes in games, you're like, oh, God. Yeah, but I want games that make me feel other things. Like I was playing an RPG dialect a few months ago. It was the saddest game I've ever played. I had to like lay down for an hour afterwards because oh, no. I was just so upset after playing. Not because anyone in the game did something to make me upset, but rather the narrative of the game and its construction was a very like thoughtful, meditative, like almost mournful look at a progression through time. Oh. Well, sad is a sad is a very tricky emotion. That yeah, is super good, though. Well, especially in this format, like people will read a sad book, they'll watch a sad movie because it's a passive thing. But when you actually have to work to continue through the process of being made sad, that's that can be a rough experience. Whereas scared, usually it's framed as overcoming the fear or fighting the fear. Mm -hmm. So it's a really hard balance, I think, as a as a designer. But I. But I want games to make me feel things. I'm super excited about the concept. Oh, I definitely agree. I, I wish I could do things like that as a designer. <laughs> but it's... Like, happy is easy. Scared is tougher, but it's straightforward. Mm -hmm. But, like, sad. Oh, sad is tough. Well, I think also this ties back into, like, the reviewer perspective. Because a lot of games have, you know, similar themes. They have similar mechanics. And when and when I'm looking for games now, I tend to look for a game that's sort of, how will this challenge me in a way that I haven't tried before? What about this is new? What about it is different? Does it present an existing, you know, theme in a way that incorporates, you know, a more diverse or inclusive background? Sorry, diverse or inclusive. That's interesting to me. Does it present a novel theme or novel mechanics that I haven't tried before? That's interesting to me. Can it make me feel a new way during a game that I haven't gotten from a lot of games? These are all things that, you know, as a designer, you need to be thinking about when you're pitching to reviewers because reviewers, you know, do get a fair number of game review requests and you need to at least present what makes your game different. If all you can say is, you know, we're a medium weight euro set during the Renaissance period as you trade different goods to become the best merchant in town. Well, a lot of games do that. I'm not necessarily judging those games in particular, but rather saying that you need to have a good idea of what makes your game compelling to a reviewer to want to try. You know what I've noticed uh, recently, and maybe this is a new thing that publishers are going for, but the creation of a universe. I've noticed a lot of publishers will, like their yeah. first game. Yeah, it's it's actually, I'm really excited about this, uh, and I'm hoping a lot of publishers go this route, but I've seen publishers, will their first game um, they put out will have maybe a story inside of the rules, 
and they're trying to, and the reason they put this story in the rules is because they're setting up for a universe. So they can have other games within this universe that will have different themes, different mechanics, but they could also maybe use the same art assets, which is mm -hmm. economically efficient for a publisher, but for a reviewer, you're like, oh, I can now feel like I can emotionally invest in this game because I'm going to carry this character on into the next part of this story, which is really cool. And that's something mm -hmm. that you usually only get in RPGs. And I think that as these board game publishers are creating more games within their self-created universes, we're going to get to experience that same emotional connection that you have when you play RPGs. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because I know Near and Far is a direct continuation of the Above and Below universe, and uh, a lot of Tim Fowers' games are all set in sort of like, I hesitate to call it the Burgle universe, but that's essentially what the first push in that direction was. So those sort of things. I think those end up being more compelling to reviewers because it also establishes some sort of review continuity. Like, oh, you know, when someone sees five games in a shared universe, they're going to want to know which game do I play first, and they're going to look to reviewers, and let's say I've reviewed one of them, Cassie's reviewed another, Outlet 3 has reviewed another, and it's sort of spread across all of us, it's hard to get a sense of how the games relate to each other, because, you know, Cassie's review style might be different than my review style, might be different than, like, you know, Sarah Thompson's review style over somewhere else, and it's, it's nice to have sort of a thematic consistency as well. So earlier when you were both talking about um, like giving bad reviews, um, I know there's a lot of talk in the community, some people asking why aren't there bad reviews and people usually answering why would I want to play a game I don't like? So they tend to self-select and avoid games that they would give bad reviews for anyway. But it brought to mind the difference to me between uh, design critiques and published game critiques which a review is generally after the game has already gone to production, so you can't change anything. Whereas I'm used to design critiques with playtests and prototypes, so you, you want to find every problem and you want to point it out so it can be fixed. But once the game is already made, uh, it feels really mean to point out the things that are wrong because they can't be fixed at that point. And then, you know, barring a second edition, which if it's a big problem, you're not going to get a second edition. Any thoughts on the difference there and how... Do you avoid doing bad reviews because you avoid games that you wouldn't like, or do you just try to gloss over the bad parts, or what is what are your approaches to that? I can actually give you an even simpler reason why I don't do bad reviews that often. It's because board games require more than one person to play them usually, and I can generally tell you, did I like a game or did I not like a game after one play? I don't necessarily have a full review in my brain, but I've got a sort of first impression, and it might take some plays and the game might rise up. This has happened sometimes. It might take some plays and the game might fall further. This has also happened. But, you know, when you go to a game night and people know that you review board games, they kind of expect you to only bring good ones <laughs> or ones that you like. Yeah. It's a very odd sensation to go to a board game night where people are like, oh, you know, Eric's coming, he's brought some new games, what are we going to play? And you are like, well, there's this game, name redacted for obvious reasons, that I don't think I like, but I need to get two more plays in so I can write a cohesive review. That sells it to nobody. And so, yeah. you know, 
follow-up brain is like, okay, well, easier way, just don't tell them that you don't like it. Which you can already see how that's worse. <laughs> yeah. Because now you're just, I hesitate to use the word inflicting, but you're inflicting this game on other people. And it undermines your credibility as their friend. Because, <laughs> you know, there are people who are totally happy to, and there's nothing wrong with this. You buy them a copy of Azul, they'll just play Azul forever. That's great. They have one game they love. But you have sort of a, I hesitate to say responsibility because it's sounding very formalized, but there's an expectation that you're generally only going to bring games people like when you're playing games. And it's a very tough sell to tell somebody, I'm not sure if I like this game or not, but let's give it another whirl, and then they don't like it. Because this might be the only game night they go to for a month, and you've just eaten an hour of their game night with a game they didn't like at all, that you suspected they might not like. That's along the lines of what I was thinking for my personal reasons, which is time. Yeah. You know, it's a lot of time and effort to gather adults uh, who mm -hmm. have lives and jobs and families together mm -hmm. to play games more than just one night a month. I mean, to mm -hmm. be able to meet up with a game group even once a week is really awesome for mm -hmm. you to be able to get that many people to show up. So if I have limited time, first of all, you know, we're doing the ones that have Kickstarter dates. And after I've played those, then I'm going to play the ones that I want to enjoy because I just did some work. You know, playing games is fun, but when you're trying to develop an opinion while you're playing it, it is work. And it's not always super exciting. Sometimes you're writing notes as you're playing the game. You've got questions because rules weren't as clear as they should be when being sent to a reviewer. Pay a rule book editor. <laughs> Sorry. Yes. What? Oh, please. Please. It's, you know, I, know, I understand you want to wait until after the Kickstarter funds, but if your reviewers don't know how to play your game, they might play it and have a terrible experience, and that's going to be reflected upon their review, and you're going to have a bad review because you just didn't explain something clearly enough, and that's... Mm -hmm. Please pay someone to edit your rule books. My God. Like, reviewers also are not playtesters. Mm-hmm. That's a thing that, I mean, I tend to end up feeling like a playtester anyway, just because of the design side. Mm -hmm. So I'm always going to give some feedback about this and it makes sense and what was this about and this and this and this. But also, I wasn't hoping to have to do that. I was right. hoping to just play the game and it was good to go. And then I just give an opinion. Yeah. So yeah. My, I would just love it if you can get the vibe sometimes. I'm not, a, I'm not a game designer. I will just keep saying that. But you can get the vibe sometimes that the game has not been blind playtested. Like, they haven't just given the rulebook to someone who's never seen the game before and say, hey, try this out. And I will say with the tiniest bit of bias that this tends to happen with Kickstarter games more than large publisher games. I'm not saying it doesn't happen with publisher games. I'm just saying it tends to happen more with Kickstarter games in my experience, where there may be a few more development cycles might have been good for the game, but then it gets sent to me and I'm like, well, I, I mean, I don't know what to do with your rules or I don't know what to do with your rule book or you've told me to do this interaction, but it doesn't make any sense based on what I understand from the rule book. And that's a problem for me because it just stops the review dead in its tracks. It really does. You know, you sometimes I'm reading rules and I'm like, I don't know what this game is. Is this a game? I don't know what I'm reading. Yep. And you have 
a deadline and you're like, so you send them an email with questions. Now you're on how long it's going to take them to respond with the answers. Honestly, I just DM people now. I'll like oh, DM you? or ping. I'll be like, I don't have time for email. I apologize. You're on Twitter. Hello. Yes, I have some questions about your rule book. <laughs> that's I a good idea. I always have questions about your rule book. I hate, yeah, that's one of the things that gets my goat with reviewing things. You know, I have no problems with other stuff. You know, if you're sending something for review, well, I don't have a problem with it, but if you're saying stuff for a review to have the artwork good, if you're going to have people taking photos and videos, that's mm -hmm. a thing, but it doesn't bother me, but it's the rules. If the rules are not understandable, I can't review your game. How do I review your, and sometimes I have to like watch a video or I'll watch another reviewer that's already reviewed it because mm -hmm. hopefully they figured it out because I have no idea what these rules say. Right. And that's really frustrating. If I have to go on BGG to try and get clarifications for the rules in your game that hasn't been released yet, I am now the effective canary in a coal mine. Like, it's not a good place for me to be. So, like, if, if I could prioritize what needs to be finished by the time I get it for a review, especially for a Kickstarter review, I am a photographer, and I will say this in the specific order that I intended. Rulebook first, game second, art third and i Definitely. really want the art to be good because i need it for photography reasons but if the rule book's not good game's gonna be a mess definitely i would say that order is true for any published game too i'd hope so yeah the, the rule book is the is the key that to me the rule book is the game like components and art are all wonderful things that are great and important but the rules are the actual game without them it's not a game you're hanging out with friends playing with toys which is great you can do that <laughs> but it's not a game the rules literally are the game yeah you're right i always just say that the rules are a framework by which one person suggests that you can have fun with the stuff that's in this box exactly and so exactly I'm like, I'm like if i got the rules what happens sometimes is i'll mess up a rule but because the rule that i messed up seems more intuitive than the correct rule I will just accidentally keep doing that. Eventually, I'll sheepishly pop, or offer it up as, hey, if you'd like to play with a fun variant, comma, I guess, here's the <laughs> way that I played it for a while, embarrassingly. But that's my lifestyle, making mistakes. Yeah, if I have a problem with the rules, and I'm like, you know, I've done that before as well, where I've, and it wasn't me, it was the way the rules were written. And then I later found out that it was actually the opposite of the way the words were meant to be said in the rules. Uh, but then you find that the way you were playing it was the most intuitive way. I throw that in my review. You know, I'll say we played it the wrong way because it felt more correct. And I think it should be this way because it feels more correct. And it just kind of gets tossed into my review at that point that I played it the wrong way and you should be careful that you don't play it the wrong way. But if you do, you actually might enjoy it more. <laughs> so, just happens. Yep. See, I would see that as a design problem. It's not the most elegant it can be if it's not the most intuitive. And, I don't know, choices were made. And <laughs> it's usually too late to fix it. Like I said, that's that's the thing with blind, blind playtesting and doing a proper iteration. So, we are probably out of time. We had a lot of pauses I'm going to be cutting out, so I don't actually know how long this episode is. So you each want to just give some contact info and anything else you want to tell people about. Uh, Eric, you want to go first? 
Sure. Um, so you can find me online at whatseric.playing.com. Uh, I'm also on Instagram a fair bit at what's Eric playing due to a uh, Twitter character name limit. Whatever. I'm what's e playing on Twitter. Meh. Uh, the last thing I want to say is if you're interested in getting into content creation, the first step to doing it is starting. So there's just kind of start making things. You will get better the more that you do it. And I would be doing myself a disservice if I didn't also mention and put in a quick plug for the uh, Inside Voices Media Fellowship is a thing that I'm helping work on for the Inside Voices Network that's designed to get new content creators a voice, a platform, help them get started. Um, applications for that are due on July 30th, and you can find more information at bit.ly slash capital IV fellowship. And Cassie. So you can find me at uh, our website, indiegamereport.com. You can actually find a bunch of Indie Game Report content there, not just mine. But I also have a personal website where you can find just my stuff and also my information for learn to play video services that I provide. And that is my website, CassieLelle.com. Uh, I'm also on Twitter all the time. And my Twitter handle is at Friedman Cassie, which is my real name. Um, Cassie L is actually a, a throw off of my middle name is Lynn. So I went Cassie L with a capital L and I was like, let me just spell that out. So I'm Cassie E-L-L-E. -L -L -E. But my Twitter handle is my real name, Friedman Cassie. <laughs> and that's that. Okay. And you can find me on Twitter at BlueQBGS and check out my blog at BlueQBoardGames.com. And all the show notes will be mentioned at the end of this show. Okay. Thank you both for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Thanks for having me. It was a lot of fun. Agreed. That's all for this episode. You can find show notes for all episodes at theboardgameworkshop.com. Follow the show on Twitter at the BG Workshop, like the show on Facebook, and join the show's Facebook group to talk about episodes and game design. If you'd like to send in a question, you can email it to questions at theboardgameworkshop.com. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.